baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up, and your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. You're listening to the Odyssey Las Vegas Public Affairs Show, and I'm Heather Vale. Today I'm speaking with Gina DiNardo and Carolyn Manoa, co-hosts of the AKC National Championship, which is being broadcast this weekend. During this holiday tradition, over 5,300 dogs from more than 20 countries will be competing for the honor of Best in Show. Gina is also the Executive Secretary of the American Kennel Club and has worked with the AKC for 27 years. She's a former exhibitor and breeder and was born into the sport with both of her parents being AKC judges. Carolyn is a noted sportscaster, award-winning host, reporter, and content creator. She's also the host of the American Kennel Club's digital streaming platform, AKC TV. And they're joined today by a Westie named Bruno. Thank you all for being here today. (laughs) Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. (laughs) So for the listeners who aren't familiar, what exactly is the American Kennel Club? So the AKC is the governing body for the sport of purebred dogs in the United States. It's kind of like the NFL for football or Major League Baseball. We set the rules. We approve the judges. We register the dogs. We keep records going back to 1884. Uh, and then we put on one event annually, the AKC, which is our national championship. And what exactly happens at the annual AKC national championship? Well, it's dogs from all across the country, but really all across the world. I mean, more than 20 foreign countries represented, every state in the United States represented. And it's a chance for thousands of breeders, owners, handlers from across the country and world to come together and celebrate a fantastic year of competition. The road to the national championship actually begins for many in January. uh, And there are so many competitions over the course of the calendar year where you can accumulate points and dogs. Dogs, you know, will go up and down the rankings. The national championship is open to every dog. And so that's why you see just thousands and thousands of dogs entered each year. But it's a place for this community of dog lovers to come together and not just celebrate the national championship, but, you know, the more than 25 sports that the AKC recognizes. There's diving dogs, there's obedience, there is fast cat, which is essentially a hundred yard dash for dogs. There is the national agility invitational. And so it's a, it's a very big celebration of at the very base man's bond with uh, their canine companion. And it's just wonderful to be a part of it. When you say it's open to all dogs, does that include mixed breeds or just purebred? So the national championship, the confirmation event is open only to purebred dogs. But most of the American Kennel Club's 26 events are open to all dogs, including mixed bred breeds that are listed with AKC. So agility, obedience, diving dogs, fast cats, all those sports we mentioned are open to, to all dogs. Any dog in America can compete and come and be part of the American Kennel Club. Okay. And how did Bruno do this year? (laughs) So Bruno's only an eight-month-old puppy. So he's an aspiring national champion or a national champion in training. He's an adorable West Highland White Terrier, one of the many terrier breeds that will feature on New Year's Day on the national championship. And he's our lucky charm. 
If there was a competition for eating treats, he would be the winner because today he's been on his best behavior. Okay, awesome. What was unique about the national championship this year? The most unique thing I would say that comes to mind for me is just the record number of entries. I mean, every year, and we've we've had this championship now for more than 20 years, it continues to grow and evolve and get bigger and better. And so to have more than 5,300 dogs entered for the national championship is truly remarkable when you consider that at the end of it all on Sunday, there is only one dog that stands above the rest and has their name etched into the history books. And so the size and scale of it is just remarkable. And then also the fact that all 200 breeds that are now recognized by the American Kennel Club were represented over the course of the weekend. There are three new breeds this year that we're going to introduce everybody to on New Year's Day on ABC, uh, which is always really excited when you have a newly recognized breed with the American Kennel Club. And it's a very powerful, exciting trio this year that are being inducted into the fold of the great breeds that have already been recognized. And so to see all 200 breeds and to see so many people back at the dog show bringing their dogs and showing their dogs was really what made this one extra special. Okay. Now you mentioned a bunch of sports that some of the dogs take part in. Are they judged on their performance and their ability to play the sports or is it just about being pretty and meeting the breed standards? So for the confirmation event, dog shows are really, they've created to be an evaluation of breeding stock. So which dogs have the right characteristics that you want to continue into the next generation? So people who devote their lives to breeding and preserving these breeds really study pedigrees, learn anatomy, learn genetics, and try to match up and pair the best representatives of the breed so that we have healthy, happy dogs going forward into, you know, centuries to come. The other sports that are open to other dogs, mixed breeds, it doesn't really matter. And every sport has rules, regulations, and procedures for judging. So confirmation, each breed has a written breed standard that the dogs are being judged against. The standard describes the dog's temperament, coat type, length, how the bodies form, the shape of the eyes, ears, feet, you name it. And that lays out what the ideal dog is. And that includes temperament because all of these breeds were bred for a function and a purpose. And if they aren't able to do what they were bred to do, then that's something that, you know, it's not in their temperament is not proper. The other sports like agility, there are rules, there are obstacles they must navigate. If they knock down a jump or they miss a contact, they get points taken away. And for agility, it's the fastest dog that has a clean run wins. And every sport has a set of rules. And it's pretty easy to figure out once you uh, watch a few of them. Okay. Now, obviously, with over 5,000 dogs, that represents a lot of different breeds. But which breeds specifically are most in the spotlight this year? Well, there are a number of breeds across the country that really resonate with people that are so popular. Australian Shepherds, Labrador Retrievers, Golden Retrievers, French Bulldogs. Those are the dogs that really had an incredible total of entries. I mean, they were very well represented at the national championships. So you're going to see those breeds that America just has fallen in love with for decades. But you're also going to see really rare breeds that you almost never get a chance to see. I mean, there are a couple of breeds like a Chinook or um, a Sholu eats Quintley or, you know, a, a Norwegian Lundehund that you might never come across. And so it's exciting to have a mixture of both. Okay, nice. So when and where can listeners go to watch the national championship broadcast? 
Well, we hope you join us on New Year's Day, January 1st, 2 p.m. Eastern on ABC. So it's a national broadcast. We're in every market uh, on New Year's Day. We start at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, and we'll be going all afternoon long until we crown a national champion. So we hope that you ring in your 2023 with us and celebrate the holiday with us uh, on Sunday afternoon. Okay. And where can people find out more about the American Kennel Club in general? American Kennel Club website, akc.org, is a great place to start for information about dogs, health, nutrition, and to help you find a breed of dog that might be right for you and your family. Okay, awesome. So once again, the website is akc.org, akc.org for the American Kennel Club, and the AKC National Championship Dog Show is broadcasting this Sunday, January 1st, starting at 2 p.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Pacific, and that is on ABC TV. And I want to thank you, Gina, Carolyn, and of course, Bruno, for being here today and letting us know more about what's going on. And it sounds like a blast, and I'll definitely be tuning in myself. Thank you so much. Thanks so much. Yeah, thank you. We are the 25%. That's a quarter of all Americans, over 61 million people with a disability. And we want a world where everyone is 100% included, just like you. Easter Seals Disability Services. We are the 25.org. I'm Heather Vale, and you're listening to the Odyssey Las Vegas Public Affairs Show. Today, I'm speaking with David Kiva, president of EDF Action, the advocacy partner of the Environmental Defense Fund. David brings nearly 20 years of experience to his role and spent the majority of his career focused on running political and advocacy campaigns. Prior to joining EDF Action, he played a central role in helping elect President Joe Biden. David, thank you so much for being here today. I'm delighted to be here. Thanks for having me, Heather. So listeners are probably familiar with the Environmental Defense Fund, but what exactly is EDF Action? EDF Action is, just as the name suggests, the advocacy partner of the Environmental Defense Fund. So we focus in on a couple of things. We do advocacy, which means lobbying or advocating in Congress or in state houses for our policy priorities and raising awareness amongst the general public about why they're important. And we also engaged in some campaign work. EDF Action was very active in the 2022 midterm elections, particularly in Nevada, where we uh, were proud to support Congresswoman Susie Lee, Congressman Steve Horsford, who was just elected after he was reelected by the people of, of Nevada's 4th District to serve as the chair of the Congressional Black Caucus for the first time ever, and Senator Catherine Cortez Masto. And why is it that you support those politicians in particular? Well, it's not just because we like them. It's because they've been (laughs) terrific on our issues, especially support for the environment, support for taking meaningful action to address climate change, but doing it in a way that's going to create good paying jobs and clean energy at the same time. Okay, so it sounds like Nevada voted correctly if we're looking at it from an environmental standpoint. But what about the rest of the country? How do we compare to what happened during the midterm elections across the nation? I think in Nevada, we did really, really well. Across the nation, we did pretty well. I was pleased, EDF Action was pleased, that almost all of the candidates that we chose to support, the overwhelming majority of whom were incumbents, meaning they were up for re-election, won and fared a lot better than, than we had thought. You know, Historically, when there's a new president, his party loses a lot of seats in their first their first time on the ballot, the first midterm election. 
that didn't happen so much this election cycle. And one of the key reasons why that was the case, in, in my view, was the passage of the Inflation Reduction Act, which took really significant, meaningful action to address the climate crisis. Okay. Now, since they were mostly incumbents, that means they've already been doing their job for several years now. How do you think that the report card, so to speak, on environmental issues has been handled in the past few years? And what kind of changes would you like to see going forward? That's a great question. I don't want to be too rosy, but the past couple of years have seen more progress on taking meaningful legislative action to address the climate crisis and environmental concerns than anything we've ever seen before in the history of the country. So my grade for progress legislatively on climate would be an A, A plus, particularly if you're grading on a curve versus anything that we've ever done before. There were two huge components to that. The first was the Inflation Reduction Act, which I've already mentioned, but I haven't talked about in any substance or, or depth. The best estimates out there are that the Inflation Reduction Act will get us to at, at least 40% emission reduction by the year 2030. That's only eight years from now, seven years, because I guess we're almost at the very end of, of 2022. Mm-hmm. Um, that's making huge strides on climate just over a very short window and putting us our, our national goal of 50% emission reduction by, uh, by 2030 well within reach. As the title of the bill suggests, that bill will also reduce inflation by addressing one of the key drivers of high costs for Nevadans and Americans all across this country, their energy costs. We talk a lot about electric vehicles because it's easy for people to understand and it's easy for me to understand energy, how we power our homes and offices is a little bit more complicated, right? Because you don't necessarily know what goes on behind the switch. But the best study, the best estimates are that the Inflation Reduction Act by 2030 is going to reduce the annual cost of energy for the average American family by over $500. That's really significant savings. When you combine that with making it cheaper and easier to get Americans into electric vehicles, where we believe the best way to relieve pain at the pump is to not have to go to the pump anymore. Mm -hmm. We're going to see an economy that runs a lot cleaner, but that also performs a lot better in terms of protecting Americans' pocketbooks. So that's a huge, huge piece of progress, but it also will be accelerated by the earlier action that Congress took and sent to the president to sign the bipartisan infrastructure law won't move emissions reduction, the the root cause of the climate crisis, as fast or as aggressively as the Inflation Reduction Act is expected to, but made really significant investments, not just in roads and bridges, but also in our power grid and how we make sure that we keep the lights on, because we all know that roads and bridges are critically important, but that's not all that that fits under the definition of infrastructure in, in this modern day and age. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So the cool thing about Nevada is it's the perfect place to have solar panels because we've got sunshine like over 300 days a year. And, you know, a lot of people are moving that way and adding solar panels and getting into the solar energy game. But when you're talking about lower energy costs for homeowners, is that if they stick with status quo and they stick with NV Energy in this case, or is that because there's going to be incentives for them to switch to solar? 
That's a great question. There are both incentives for individual consumers to switch to solar, but a lot of the incentives are going to be at the utility level. So the Inflation Reduction Act makes significant tax benefits to utilities like NV Energy if they switch to renewable energy as, as a bigger component of the baseload energy that they are, are providing to consumers. So a lot of Nevada ratepayers won't have to do anything in order to recognize some of that $500 annual cost savings over the next seven, eight years. I've heard from some on the more conservative end of the spectrum that government action is all well and good, but we need the private sector to act as well. It's been a surprise to some of the folks I've talked to that I wholeheartedly agree with them. And one of the reasons why we are so optimistic about the opportunities for progress before us fueled by both the Inflation Reduction Act and that bipartisan infrastructure law are because the companies that are going to be impacted by it, both the big three automakers and the United Auto Workers, the union that represents the majority of of, um, auto workers in, in this country, and the utilities, the trade associations that represent them say, hey, if we're talking about meeting these climate targets, these tax credits are a good way to do it. And with these types of policy supports, we absolutely think that we can move there faster and more effectively, saving consumers money in the process. Nice. Okay. Now, you mentioned electric vehicles, reducing the pain at the pump. And that's another cool thing about especially Las Vegas. It's the perfect place to own an electric vehicle because it's a relatively small area. You can go for days without having to recharge because no one no one travels more than a couple hundred miles in a week, usually even, but definitely not per day unless driving is the full-time thing. But more and more people in Nevada and in Las Vegas are moving to electric vehicles. A lot of us already have electric vehicles, but the concern keeps coming up. Well, what about if I can't charge it? What about if I run out of charge? At least if I have a gas car, at least I know I can just go fill it up if I have to. And people are still concerned about that. So what do you see as the future of electric vehicles and the EV charging network that goes with it? The future of electric vehicles and the, the future of the EV charging network are both incredibly bright. First of all, they're driven by consumer demand. Uh, as Americans learn more and more about the choices before them uh, about whether or not to dr- choose to drive an electric vehicle, a plug-in hybrid, or a vehicle powered by an internal combustion engine, those choices become really clear because electric vehicles perform better than their traditional alternatives. They're cheaper to maintain, they're cheaper to operate, and they work better. This is one of those key places where, while a lot of the legwork to reduce emissions is done by the Inflation Reduction Act, it's really going to be coupled and and served by its work in tandem with the bipartisan infrastructure law. Specifically, there's $7.5 billion in the bipartisan infrastructure law that the government's working to get out to states to build out a network of charging stations all across the country. An interesting component of folks who are really excited about this transition include convenience store owners, gas station operators, because they recognize that rather than having their line of business go away, they have a better opportunity because if you've got to go to what used to be a gas station to plug in your electric vehicle and, and get a fast charge there, 
paying a little bit of money for it, you might be there for 15 minutes instead of three minutes. And if you wander inside, as you're likely to do, if you have a short attention span like I do, mm-hmm. you're more likely to buy some Gatorade, buy a candy bar, maybe buy a lottery ticket if that's your thing. You've got what marketers like to call a captive audience. And convenience store owners recognize, hey, this is a great thing. We're going to want those uh, high-powered electric vehicle chargers here because we're going to want the customers that come with it. Yeah, that's a great point. Now, you mentioned clean energy jobs near the beginning. What efforts are underway to create thriving communities with good-paying jobs, especially clean energy jobs? That's an excellent question. It's an effort that's been underway for a very long time and where Nevada has led the way for the nation in creating good-paying clean energy jobs. You mentioned in your generous introduction of me that I used to work for President Biden both on his campaign and in his administration. I spent a lot of time in Nevada with him, and I remember his going down to Boulder City along with members of IBEW take a tour of one of the giant solar facilities there. His view of the clean energy transition has always been through the lens of how can we provide good paying jobs in clean energy with the opportunity to join a union. That's a view that I personally share and and espouse. And I've met with unionized workers all across this country and seen the pride on their faces in the work that they do. I worked especially closely with the IBEW, the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers. By definition, everyone in that union is in energy, is an energy worker. Mm. It's still a small sliver of their overall unionized members represented who are in clean energy. But that's a union that's been really supportive of the president's plans and of the Inflation Reduction Act because they recognize that the future of energy work is in clean energy and they want those jobs to have a, have a union and pay good family supporting wage along with the opportunity to collectively bargain. So uh, the effort to create good-paying jobs in clean energy has been underfoot for a very long time. President Biden's worked closely in partnership, not just with groups like EDF and EDF Action, but across the spectrum with labor unions, including labor unions that historically have represented far more workers in traditional energy than in clean energy. And uh, the progress that we've been able to make has been powered by the fact that the American people understand the jobs of the future are in clean energy, and they want them here in the United States. Perfect. Okay. So how do listeners find out more about EDF Action and some of the initiatives that you have underway? That's a a great question, and I appreciate the softball there, Heather. Mm -hmm. Uh, They can go to edfaction.org, edfaction.org, to learn more about what we're doing. Uh, We are, again, the advocacy partner of the Environmental Defense Fund. To learn more about the work that the Environmental Defense Fund is going, they can simply go to edf.org. Okay, nice. So edfaction.org is the website for EDF Action. That's the advocacy partner for the Environmental Defense Fund. And if you want to find out more about the Environmental Defense Fund in general, edf.org. So edfaction.org and edf.org. And David, I want to thank you so much for being here and talking with us about the various issues. And sounds like we're on the right path towards a brighter future. So I appreciate your time being here and talking through it with us. 
Oh, we, we couldn't be more excited, and I appreciate your taking the time this morning to chat with me. Thank you, Heather. All right. Thanks, David. Stories come to life at your local parks and forests. They're places of wonder, and they're closer than you think. Make the forest part of your story today at a local park near you, or find one at discovertheforest.org. Brought to you by the United States Forest Service and the Ad Council. I'm Heather Vale, and this is the Odyssey Las Vegas Public Affairs Show. Today I'm speaking with Shantara McBride and Rosalind Wiseman, co-authors of the new book, Courageous Discomfort, How to Have Important, Life-Changing Conversations About Race and Racism. Shantara is an author, preacher, speaker, teacher, and founder of Marvelous University, a social enterprise that offers life coaching and success planning for young people, specializing in leadership development for girls and young women. Rosalind's the co-founder of Cultures of Dignity, an organization that shifts the way communities think about our physical and emotional well-being by working in close partnership with young people, educators, policymakers, and business and political leaders. She's also the author of multiple New York Times best-selling books, including Queen Bees and Wannabes, Helping Your Daughter Survive Cliques, Gossip, Boyfriends, and the New Realities of Girl World, which was the basis for the hit movie and Broadway musical, Mean Girls. Shantara and Rosalind, thank you both so much for being here today. Thank, thank you. you for having us. So why did you decide to write this book together, Courageous Discomfort? Well, I'll start. This is Shantara. I think, one, we, we trust each other. <laughs> and so okay. um, in the summer of 2020, it was just, you know, chaotic and crazy and sad and I was sharing with Ross how many, you know, text messages I received or DMs I received asking me how am I doing? Am I, you know, am I okay? How's my soul? Should I send you flowers? Should I send your family dinner? You know, and so <laughs> just just being close with Rosalind and sharing with her just the messages I received and well-intentioned people wanting to know what can we do or what can they do to help fix this or end this. And I'm, I'm putting air quotes that you can't see. And it was one of those situations where being able to be honest and, and talk with Ross, it just led to let's write something. Let's write something that's not an article. And let's, let's write something together that really people need. So when they were talking about fixing this with air quotes, <laughs> I mean, you're talking about mid-pandemic, but I'm assuming you're referring to some kind of racial Absolutely. inequity happening at the time. Absolutely. It was when George Floyd was killed, Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor. You know, it was a lot going on. Mm -hmm. um, and I think people had time to sit and the pandemic made people really pay attention around the world to what was happening. And being close with Rosalind, it was one of those opportunities where I was like, oh my gosh, you would not believe the message I just received from, again, well-intentioned folks. And I think it was that opportunity that we got the chance to come together and, and give people a handbook on how to actually be allies, how to be advocates in ending systemic racism. And, you know, that's a very good question. How do we become allies? Mm -hmm. And, you know, it, there's so many things to unpack here. But let's start with the nutshell version. What is the answer to this? You know, I think the thing that Shantara and I bring besides our friendship and our trust is that we have a long history of skills and expertise in being able to help people have not only be able to acknowledge the discomfort that they're having with, you know, issues in their family or in their community, so not only do we have that, but we also have the skills to be able to guide people through the process to a better way. 
And so our friendship enabled us to focus on really focus on what, what is happening, what has been happening, what is happening in this country around race and racism or racism and how difficult it is and how even more difficult it is for us to talk about it. Because we had this moment that Shantara was talking about where people were talking about it a lot. And then there was this tremendous effort to say, no, no, we can't talk about this. We absolutely cannot. And so Shantara and I really, really do feel like it's, it's possible to be able to talk about these things. We need the skills to be able to do that. And now I can't remember what your question was. So can you remind me of what your question is? I mean, the question is just basically, how do we deal with acknowledging the fact that there's racial issues in our society? But, you know, a lot of us aren't sure, what do you say? What do you not say? Is it racist to say this? Is it not racist to say? Like, Mm -hmm. you know, there's all this pressure to say the right thing, do the right thing or not, to the point where a lot of people don't know anymore (laughs) what the answer is. Right. So, yeah. So we got to get away from all that. We got, and Mm -hmm. and this book actually, and our work really, really focuses on that and and gives, and in some ways gives grace to people about like, hey, we got to like stop. We got to stop on that. Because it doesn't help anybody to be so afraid of what you are going to say or not say that you don't do anything. And so we, we really need to re what we're doing is reframing how people are talking about these issues so that they have some grace and they can breathe a little bit, literally, and mm-hmm. that we can be and that and that also they have the words in their mouth, but to be able to and then their heart and their mind to be able to speak with some comfort that they will be able to make quote unquote mistakes. And that the reason that we're able to do this is we have a foundation of dignity of let's stop focusing on the word racist because people get so defensive and everything sort of shuts down around that, which, which doesn't take away from the importance of when that behavior happens. But mm-hmm. we want to talk about things in a more up- uplifting way, which is to uphold the dignity of people. And so we want to reframe it to say that, that when something happens, where somebody is being stripped of their dignity based on their race, or um, that that is what we are, that's what we are focused on. And it's a way to focus on the person that is being harmed, instead of labeling and blaming the the person who is perpetrating. Yeah, I think a lot of times people, and, and just being more specific, people who are not Black, Indigenous, and people of color really struggle with, you know, I don't want to make a mistake. And so therefore, the silence is what leads, you know, is what is in place because of this fear of making a mistake. And I always ask, you know, what what would be the mistake? What what would be the mistake? Oh, I don't want to say anything wrong. And I don't want to. And I said, I, I we completely understand that. And that's why I think this book is so helpful because it also asks the questions that a lot of folks want to ask and aren't afraid to ask or it's how we ask the question. And I think this book is, and I know this book is so helpful because it takes away the, the fear of getting it wrong. And I think there's no way to to get it, get it right. Getting it wrong means just, just seeing something, seeing someone not being treated with dignity and not doing anything at all. And getting it right means I'm here, I'm present. I may not use the right words, but I'm going to sit here with you. I'm going to sit in the mess of it because that's what racism is. It's mess. It's designed <laughs> so that, that people are not treated with dignity. And so if you say, you know what, I, I probably going to say something wrong. And so I'm asking forgiveness in the front, but I am here. <laughs> I am sitting in the mess. 
what what I'm here, what can I do? What can I say? And and a lot of times that right there, that showing up, that sitting in the mess is doing way more than not saying anything yeah. at all. Well, because when we don't say anything, it looks like we either are too weak, too incompetent, or don't or agree with whatever or complicit, is happening. Yeah. And yeah. complicit. So that's, I yeah. mean, so our silence really, really sends a message. Um, but I, I will say, because I can't remember who said it, but this thing of, you know, these conversations that we want to have, I'm not sure the people, non-Black and Brown people, non-Indigenous people, I don't know if people really want to have these conversations mm-hmm. until they have a moment where they're like, oh, no. Afraid, mm-hmm. like, yeah. I mean, I think there's a lot of people who are like, yeah, actually, I'm just not going to deal with this because I don't know what to do. I don't know what to say. So I'm just going to, but then we all have these moments and we all have these moments where we're like, oh no, oh no, oh no, I don't know what to do. And that's the moment when you're like, oh, I really need to have this skill. So knowing that you are going to run into problems, be mindful, be prepared, have control over your life so that people are not making decisions for you. So the people are not putting words in your mouth. So the people don't, so you're not looking like you're agreeing with things that you don't. I mean, that's, that's really important because I know that there's a lot of people there, you know, out there. And I, I have fell, fell into this category of, you know, I, ugh, I don't, I don't, I don't want to do this, but we will have moments where it will be forced upon us. And we want to be in those moments, the people that we want to be. Yeah. So then what are the skills that we need to work on and have in place when we're having these conversations about race? I think one of the skills, and I, you know, I said it earlier, just being prepared to sit in the mess, being mm-hmm. prepared to sit in the discomfort. And I think a lot of times, and, and I know it's part of our world, we, we don't want to be uncomfortable. You know, we, we, we right. like things to be real smooth and real easy. And unfortunately, systemic racism is real. And so I think part of it is being prepared and sitting in the discomfort. And that and that's why we call it courageous discomfort. Because the other part is I'm going to be brave. I'm gonna, I'm I'm going to try and have this conversation, or I'm going to not ask those questions, or I'm no, I'm not going to use, you know, be microaggressive when I see um, a person of color. I'm not going to, you know, ask, can I touch their hair or ask where are you really from or compliment them on how well-spoken they are, things like that. And, 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 you know, this book is full of the truth because I think a lot of times people um, don't even know that, that they're being microaggressive. They have no idea. And I love that chapter because we talk about, it's not always what we say, but it's also how we say it. And we know that in anything, you know, your friend can compliment you, you know, on a dress or tell you, or or trying to tell you not to wear it and say, ah, Ah, you know, and so it's, it's the how. It's it's a lot of how we say things. It's it's as we prepare for the holiday season. Is how do I still be around these folks that I've had very you know tough conversations with, or I don't show up because I don't want to have the conversation? This book prepares you to be. To, I love when Ross says it. It helps you repair. It helps you repair relationships. And so when we talk about you know, what we say, how we say it, when we when we get ready for the holiday season and how are we going to be around these folks? Um, when we talk about being able to go to work and just go to work, because a lot of times when it comes to being a Black, Indigenous, and person of color, we don't really want to go to work and then have to lead the diversity discussion. 
You know, we want to be able to go to work and do our jobs, but in a lot of situations, we can be the the token person at the at the job. And so I think this is what we need, you know, in, in understanding how to have these conversations. And I can, you know, when we're thinking about this, and Jan and Tara talked about you know, Thanksgiving dinner and all of that. So, you know, here's the things that we really need to be mindful of. We need to really understand how we ourselves, regardless of the issue, right, you know, racism or any of the isms in the world, but just how do we, how have we learned how to handle conflict in our lives? And how have we learned, uh, you know, the, uh, how we are permitted to express ourselves, especially negative feelings it's in our families, in close relationships, people we've grown up with. That's important because it impacts the way that we talk about things. And, and also courageous discomfort is hard because especially for some people, and, you know, that can be often sometimes tr- sort of characteristically women is that we've been, not always, but characteristically, that women have been raised to make other people feel comfortable. Mm-hmm. And there are times, there there is a time and a place for being, for to be wonderful for people to feel mm-hmm. comfortable. Like when you walk into a home and someone says, can I get you a cup of coffee or a glass of wine? Or, you know, so how can I make you comfortable? Or when you're ill, like, how can I make you comfortable? But when we're trying, when we want to be in this world with self-agency, where we're, again, showing up in our relationships the way that we feel like we are, you know, according to what we, I think we believe maybe our values are, then we got to match it. We got to do the work to be able to match our actions with our values when it's really called for. So it really is about understanding like how comfortable do I feel expressing my anger? Do I sit on things forever and then blow up about something small? Because when that happens, people usually blow you off because they think you're being ridiculous about something small. Or do I think that I need to give 400 articles and and po- and send them to my uncle who totally disagrees with me about the stuff on race <laughs> without his invitation, right? Because he sends that to me and I hate it when he does that. Mm-hmm. That's not good because people hate those things. And so <laughs> what we're saying is like, do you got to do the work of like, okay, what, how have I handled conflict? I need to really maintain my dignity, my sense of worth. I also need to maintain the other person's sense of dignity. And that they feel that I am literally sitting there and as Shintara said, being present. And then I'm not going to try and dominate the conversation and I'm not going to run away. So, um, and so when we are giving you skills of choose one thing that you want to focus on, do not get into a battle of facts because you're never going to win. If you need to walk away, you can say to that person, cause it's getting like too much and don't do this at the Thanksgiving table, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. like you're not getting into this with the Thanksgiving table. You say to your uncle, Hey, I want to have this conversation with you because it's really important to both of us. So let's have a conversation, you know, when we're watching the game later or after the game or whatever, because I don't watch football. So, but let's set up a time to talk about it because clearly this is really important. Um, and if you really, and if that person really will not leave you alone, you can, or if you're really you're in it and you're like, oh, I can't do this right now. You can say, you know what? I can't do this right now because I feel like we're not treating each other with dignity. So I, I just, this isn't going well. You can also say that. So what I'd like to do is I, I want to go, I want to take a break from this, but I don't want to give up. I'm not giving up on you. I'm not giving up on this conversation. So can we come back, you know, in two hours or tomorrow, can we set up a time to, to have a call? So the relationship is maintained and you're, and you're also not walking away furious and you're, you're proud of the way you've handled it. Yeah, actually, those are great tips, regardless of what the conflict or disagreement is. It's not just around race, obviously. 
Now, when it comes to race, a lot of people think they're being progressive by being colorblind, so to speak, and saying, well, I don't see color. I don't see race. We're all one race. We're all the human race. We're all the same. I don't think that's the answer based on what you've been saying. So for those people who, you know, they legitimately think that they're being progressive and they're being all encompassing and being accepting, what do you say to them about how to shift their behavior and their way of dealing with it? I totally get it. I get it because we, you know, this country was at a time, especially, and I don't, I don't even want to give years right now because that'll age me, but um, <laughs> when we talk about, you know, being colorblind and, and we are the human race. And I agree, I am absolutely 100% human. And unfortunately, there are systems, there are laws, there are policies, there are people who think that I should not be treated with dignity because of the color of my skin. Right. And so I love that we are we are the human race and in that we should want every human being to be treated equal. We should want every human being treated with dignity. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to can I go certain places? Can people of color do certain things? Should we get paid the same amount? Should we run for this office? Should we, you know, should I get stopped by police because I have a taillight and then I end up dead? You know, those kinds of things, when we talk about the human race, I think it is so powerful and it's so wonderful. And that's why leading with dignity means I believe every human being should be treated with dignity. And racism says every human being should not be treated with dignity. So how do we change, right? Like, how do we, how do we end systemic racism so that every human being is treated with dignity, mm -hmm. regardless of race? You know, it's still that's still for the people who think being colorblind is the answer. You know, they yeah. could say, well, yeah, you know, what she just said does support that. So I am going to continue not acknowledging race and not acknowledging that people are having a different experience than I'm having. And, you know, we're all the same. We're all having the same experience, but we're not all we're having not. the same experience. <laughs> we're not. Right. So, right. Sh Shantara, why don't you share the story that? Oh, we so there the is a story that we shared about. When I was in high school and one of my favorite teachers who I loved dearly looked at me and said, you know, Shantara, when I look at you, I don't see color. And me, you know, 14, 15, you're like, yay, I'm blending in. I thought it was such a great compliment because at 14 and 15, you don't want to stand out. You don't want to, you know, you, your goal is to blend in regardless of how, you know, individual people say we want to be. And so I remember going home and telling my parents like, oh my gosh, this teacher said that when she looks at me, she doesn't see color. And I was so excited, right? And my mom, my mom was the main one who's like, what? What do you mean? She does not see color. And I was like, uh oh, this, she is not meeting me in my excitement. You know, and my mom, <laughs> you know, <laughs> talked about how, you know, I'm from Dallas, Texas, and talked about how go we travel. We were a traveling choir. We had a chance to go to different competitions. And she said, Shantara, if she doesn't see color, when you get off a bus in certain towns, depending on where you're going, there will be people who will definitely see your color and not be excited to see you. And so her saying that she does not see color means she is not looking out for your safety. And I was like, whoa. Yeah. You know, I was not aware that didn't even cross my mind. And for my parents, it was, listen, 
I'm glad that she thinks you can sing well and that you're, you know, you made the choir and all that good stuff, but she needs to see you in order to protect you because she's the adult in this situation and you're with her. Yeah. Okay. So that made more sense to me at 14 and 15. And I was like, oh my goodness. And I know the intent of my teacher. I know what she was saying, you know, again, mm -hmm. the human race. Yeah. But unfortunately, a lot of people aren't looking at us as even human beings. I mean, we, we, we had a whole law, you know, and so there are a lot of people who don't look at black, indigenous and people of color as being fully human. And so when we talk about being the human race, it doesn't give the full weight and power of what it means to be a person of color in this country and the safety that could or could not be in place. Yeah. And I would add to that, that I, I think that when people can relate to, and Shantara is talking about that story with the teacher, it's, it's just not, it's the privilege of not knowing what it's like to be in Shantara's mother's place. Yeah. That you have to be vigilant because you're so worried about your child and you have not only your own personal experience, your family experience, but you have generations of experience. And so you have this little girl, you have, well, you have a 14 year old girl that you're so, you know, you're proud of. I want us, you know, if you're listening to this and you, you're thinking about how proud you are when you have a child who's singing and they're in the choir, they've done something, they're doing something they love. And you also have somebody who clearly a teacher who loves your kid. And so you've got all this wonderful stuff that, that parents just, just live for, right? Of like, oh my gosh, my child is in a place where, where they're going to be taken care of and where they can, they can express themselves, they can be seen. And then all of a sudden you have the, or you, you, it's not all of a sudden you have these moments of, no, they're not being seen. And this person that does love my child doesn't actually, because of, that doesn't, because they don't see my child's race, then they're going to expose them to danger. And so in that case, it feels like, we live sort of in different planets where that choir teacher didn't mean to not right. She was thinking she was doing the right mm -hmm. thing, yeah. but even, but by doing that, she exposes Shantara to danger. And I have to say that, you know, I've been doing this work for a long time, but there were plenty of times as I was writing this book that I, I realized like I wasn't seeing it from the other side because I don't have it like in my, my bones. I walk out and I don't have people some, you know, looking at me when I'm in a store or, you know, I've been, I've been with Shantara in places mm -hmm. where people clearly do not hold the door for her in ways that, that I, I, I that are flabbergasting to me. Hmm. And, um, and, you know, and it's, it's not, it, you know, it's not this thing. Like I've a couple times, you know, said to her and we've had done this over the years of like, wait, did that just happen? Mm -hmm. And that door thing happened just recently. That happened actually twice and within like a couple weeks of each other. And it's just this moment of I walk in the world differently. And so I think maybe if people who are listening to this can think, I just need to remember that I'm walking in the world differently. And so I'm not going to see things. And, and when I do, right. And when I do, I'm not a bad person for not mm -hmm. seeing it. But what we're asking you to do is be curious about it and then not feel like, you know, we are strong enough. We are strong enough people to be able to handle like, oh, I didn't know that and not like go get real defensive and like, oh my gosh, I don't want to be woke. And like all of this stuff that is used to dismiss these really important issues that we're like, no, no, we are actually strong, competent people who can handle not knowing things. And we can understand, we can be curious about other people's experience and learn from them and believe them. And, and, and it's not just, you know, not recognizing the dignity of somebody. It's saying, 
oh, by not even realizing the world I'm living in, that's actually the consequence. And so I have to be real. I really need to be curious about that so that I can contribute to more people in my world and in my life, whether I know them or not, being able to be treated with dignity. At, like, for example, when Shantara walks, walks through a door, right? And somebody who doesn't hold a door for her, but does for me, which is exactly what I saw. Mm-hmm. Or um, when she's 15 years old and that teacher needs to be told, actually, you do need to recognize her race because she's going to get off that bus and somebody's going to see her with a bunch of white children and be very unhappy about it. Yeah. You know, this kind of ties into when people are trying to say the right thing, trying to do the right thing. I can't count the number of times I've heard someone say something and then say, wait, is that racist? Wait, am I allowed yeah. to say that? So how do we deal we with that? We got to stop that. We got to stop that. That is so annoying. Isn't it right. annoying for everybody? It's so yeah. annoying. <laughs> it's so annoying. In fact, Shantara, we should do that for our post. Like, just, it's so annoying. Like, stop. It's so, yeah. so annoying. Yeah. We just, we, like, really, what we need to say instead is check ourselves and say, is that affirming or taking away someone's essential work, their dignity? Right. Right. And that's it. And that's it. Like, that's it. Like, and when we have like that little thing come out of our mouth or you hear it, like, oh my gosh, stop. We got to stop that Mm -hmm. because that's like, no. And then just, you just got to like, what is the principle in my life of like affirming people's dignity? And that's it. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Because really Heather, no one, no one wants to be called a racist, you know, unless there's some other, you know, stuff going on, but people don't (laughs) want, you know, and people, white people especially are terribly afraid of that word. You know, it's like, I don't want to be. And so, and and so (laughs) I've been in that situation a lot, especially, you know, as a black person and, and doing the work that I do and I love it and I am so grateful for it. And, but asking like, Oh wait, was that racist? Was that wrong? And it's like, hold on. You tell me, you tell me why you think it's racist or why you may think it's wrong. And then it becomes this really defensive you know, situation right. and the person is like, well, I didn't mean to. Th-. And I was like, calm down. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, just slow down. And I think we're so, just slow it. And because we're so <laughs> afraid of that label and there isn't a buzzer, you know, we talk about, we wish there was a buzzer around somebody's head that says, okay, that's, that's kind of racist. So it's a little buzzer, you know, but then it's like, ding, 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 <laughs> like really racist <laughs> because we don't have that buzzer. It's like, well, wait a minute, let me slow down and let me think about am I treating this person with dignity like what Ross just said am I is this affirming somebody's humanity or is that taking it away or I want to ask this and I'm not sure and I really I have no intention of of saying it wrong or saying it incorrectly but how do I say or how do I ask that's way better than oh wait was that racist nah stop (laughs) stop You know, and I think there's a way to have these conversations without leading with, you know, the R word, as I like to put it, or, (laughs) you know, there's also a way of being genuine and being curious and being, you know, and even saying, I didn't know this was wrong, or this is the way that I was taught. And now that I'm hearing you, that may not have been so cool, or that may not have been correct, or that may not have been treating people of color with dignity, Oh, I need to shift that. I need to change that. So I'm not passing that on. That's way better than, oh my gosh, was that racist? Stop. 
Yeah. Yeah. And one more thing, I actually, which I, cause I was just talking to some teenagers about this and they were telling me, cause Shantara and I have this thing about oh, like, we yeah. really would rather you not post like post like a black, you know, uh, what's it called? Square on Instagram. The black do these kinds of, yeah. Right. Like these, these things that are like performative, performative kind of like, yeah. a, right. Like anti, like fake anti-racist behavior or actions. Cause they're, they're not, it's not hard to do that. And you don't, right. It's not hard. And also for some people, there's a feeling of, if I don't do it, I'm going to get pushed back or get called out by my peers. And so and this, this is especially true, I think, for younger people. I'll just say it that way. And if that's the case, first of all, I think you really got to have relationships with people where you, can say to, where you can say to somebody, if they're giving you problems about the fact that you haven't put a black square on your Instagram feed, then I think it's really <laughs> important to say, well, actually, I just really don't. That for me is not actually doing the work of making the world a better place. I'm actually, I'd like, I really am. That's just not what I'm, I don't think that's the case. I want to work on my relationships in my life. I want to work on, I guess you could just say that. I just want to work on my relationships and have having honest relationships about racism like I'm having right now. And, you know, young people, I had a conversation a couple of days ago with a kid who said to me that he got a post from a friend saying, swipe up if you're anti-racist. And if you didn't, then you were going to be in trouble. That's not about actually doing anti-racist work. That's about being compliant to somebody that is saying to you, you have to do this. You have to, ta- you have to test to, to see if you're like doing, if you're doing this thing. That is not the work. And we've got to be able to talk to everybody. But, you know, people who are on social media are getting, this is, that's, this kind of superficial stuff is, does, not change, does not change relationships. It actually makes it worse, I think, because it makes it also superficial. Um, and it's really about like, do I comply with what I think is groupthink? But instead saying, yeah, I'm not doing that, but I am working on my relationships. I'm working in my life to make this better, way better. And if that person can't handle that, then they're, they're then that's not a relationship. That's a friendship that you need to change in the way of like, this is not a relationship, a friendship, relationship, whatever, that's good for me. And you need to put some boundaries up about that. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. So obviously there's a lot more. We could talk for hours on this, mm-hmm. but Let's let some people do their own research. Where can people find out more about these issues or get a copy of the book? So a couple of places. One, if you want to go to your local independent bookstore and and ask for the book and get the book. (laughs) But but I think a wonderful resource is also our website, CourageousDiscomfort.com. And on there, you can definitely order the book, you know, from your local bookstore. But then also, we even have the introduction. We have questions if people are thinking about a book club, because we've already heard from folks that doing this, yeah, you can read it by yourself and it's all good. But it may be really great to, to read this book with a group of people that you know, or that you trust, or that you're, you know, you're forming. And, and we have book club discussion questions there. So if you go to Courageous Discomfort, Dot com, you can find the information. Okay, awesome. So once again, CourageousDiscomfort.com is the website. CourageousDiscomfort.com. That's where you can find out more about these issues. You can have some questions for book clubs. You can access the information they have there. And you can also get the book, which you can also get at bookstores or online booksellers or what have you. But CourageousDiscomfort.com is the place to go for all of the information in one place. And the book, once again, is called Courageous Discomfort, How to Have Important Life-Changing Conversations About Race and Racism. And Rosalind and Shantara, I want to thank you both so much for being here. This is such a great conversation to have. 
whether we have to sit in the mess of it or not <laughs> while we have the conversation. So I very much appreciate both of your time and shedding some light on this issue. So thank you so much. Thank, thank you, you for having us. Finish your high school diploma for you and your family. Visit finishyourdiploma.org to find free adult education centers near you. Brought to you by the Dollar General Literacy Foundation and the Ad Council. I'm Heather Vail with the Odyssey Las Vegas Public Affairs Show, and this is your community events calendar for nonprofit initiatives and charity events around the Valley. The American Kennel Club's National Championship Dog Show is being broadcast this weekend. It's on Sunday, January 1st, starting at 11 a.m. Pacific on ABC TV. You can also find out more about the AKC at akc.org. That's akc.org. Monday's Dark with Mark Chinook is a bi-monthly musical fundraising party at The Space, with each event raising $10,000 for a specific charity in 90 minutes. Upcoming shows include Monday, January 23rd at 8 p.m., benefiting Project Inclusion, and Monday, February 6th at 8 p.m., benefiting Adopt-A-Vet. Get tickets or find out more details at mondaysdark.com. That's mondaysdark.com. And Make-A-Wish Southern Nevada is holding their second annual Trailblaze Challenge presented by Subaru of Las Vegas, February 3rd to 5th with a 12-week training happening now. This is a 26.2-mile hike through the Valley of Fire backcountry in Mesquite with the goal of raising $300,000 to grant wishes for children with critical illnesses in Southern Nevada. Sign up or find out more information at wish.org snv trailblaze. That's wish.org slash SNV slash trailblaze. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up and your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. 